Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 91. We'll begin with a brief summation of Isaiah chapters 4 through 7 and follow with a consideration of contentious language and religious dogma. Isaiah chapter 4 continues with the bleak image of a ravaged city where all of its men are dead and there's like one man left and he's beset by seven women who are seeking to have him make an honest woman out of them. And that's all he'll have to do. He won't even have to provide for food and clothing. The ravaged city provides Ishayahu with an opportunity to confront the problem faced by most prophets. How do you transition from the vision of calamity to the vision of salvation? Or in more practical terms, who survives the transition? Who will emerge from the ruins to be redeemed? Each prophet had his own answer. Amos, who we'll meet when we review the Twelve sometime around episode 136, he actually lived before Yeshayahu by a good couple hundred years. He had a formula. A thousand will go out and only a hundred will return. And those survivors will be the righteous. Hoshea, also one of the Twelve, avoids this question altogether by stating that the Jews will come to their senses after the calamity. Yeshayahu combines both of these motifs. Disaster will come, and a large portion of the people will perish, but the survivors will survive because of their purity. He's already used this kind of imagery in the previous portion, chapter 1, when he talked about smelting out the dross and removing all the slag. But Yeshayahu's tolerance for collateral damage is much higher. Jerusalem, or Zion, plays a prominent role as well in Yeshayahu's prophecies. He mentions it 29 times in Proto or First Isaiah. It's a central location for Jewish life, a holy city that will never fall into enemy hands and will eventually claim her rightful place as the center of the world at the end of days. Jerusalem is a city, but Yeshayahu often talks of her like a woman who has been defiled and needs to be purified, like a woman after her period can wash away her impurity. Ugh. Chapter 5 begins with a parable about a vineyard, describing in very specific terms the 12 types of work needed to take care of it or neglect it. My beloved, Yeshayahu tells, had a vineyard and did everything he was supposed to do to produce grapes, but instead it yielded wild grapes, inedible and bitter. So what should be done about this vineyard? An absurd question to pose to your audience. It's not like you can punish a vineyard for producing bad grapes, or can you? Ishayahu proceeds to remove the hedge, break down the wall, never prune it or hoe it, let it overgrow, never let rain fall on it. That'll show him. Because my beloved is God, and the vineyard is the house of Israel, and seeds are the men of Judah. Quote, and he hoped for justice, but behold injustice, for equity, but behold iniquity. The rest of chapter 5 consists of short condemnations of the people, each one beginning with the word hoi, which the JPS translates as oi. <laughs> they. The condemnations fall into two categories, those with a specific punishment and those without. But all of them follow the structure of a typical lament, which begins with a krechzen, a pain-filled, heavy sigh. <sighs> Dear God. Was that necessary? <laughs> of the six Ishayahu spins in this chapter, the one that stands out for me is the fifth. Quote, Ah, those who are so wise in their own opinion, so clever in their own judgment. I went to an Ivy League school. I'm very highly educated. I know words. I have the best words. 
Ay, dumbass. Anyway, chapter six marks probably the most significant moment in Yeshayahu's life, his call to prophecy by God. And this is not via email or SMS. Yeshayahu has a vision that can only be described as tripping balls. For when Yeshayahu opens his eyes, he sees God sitting on a high and lofty throne with the hem of his robe filling up the temple. Flanking him on both sides are seraphim, sacred winged creatures with three pairs of wings, one pair to cover the eyes from seeing God's magnificence directly, one pair to cover the legs out of modesty, and one pair for flying. They, they call to each other. Kadosh, 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 holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, his presence fills all the earth. The whole temple would shake with each utterance of God as it filled with smoke. And Yeshayahu, freaking out, cries out that he is impure and unclean and unworthy to see God face to face. So one of the seraphim flies over to Yeshayahu with a red hot coal he plucks off the altar with some tongs and he touches it to Yeshayahu's lips. And now Yeshayahu is ready to go. God asks, Whom shall I send? And Yeshayahu answers, And God charges Yeshayahu with a specific task. This is what God does with all of his prophets, except Yeshayahu's is a bit of a paradoxical muddle because... Everything a prophet's supposed to do, like deliver a message, he's told from the get-go that it's not going to be received. In fact, their not listening is the outcome of being told. That is, Yeshayahu will tell them what God wants, and then they won't listen. And this comes on the legs of Yeshayahu actually volunteering for the job. All the other prophets, him and Ha, Moshe's like, not me, not me, and he needs to be encouraged. But Yeshayahu is totally gung-ho. Which raises an even more interesting question. If God wants the people to repent, why can't that just happen? Why send a prophet who will be ignored and cause a calamity only to then achieve the desired outcome? Unless suffering the calamity is part of the learning process. Oh, okay, I see what you did there. Chapter 7 recounts the war between Aram and Ephraim against Judah. Why did Ephraim, otherwise known as the Kingdom of Israel, attack their kinsmen to the south? The answer has to do with geopolitics, specifically the Assyrians, who are expanding their empire from their base in Iraq to the west. The local monarchs in what is present-day Syria and Israel are desperately trying to organize and repel the Assyrian invasion, and when the Assyrians march against Pileshet on the Mediterranean coast, they also turn their attention to Damascus and Samaria. So with invasion inevitable, Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekach ben Ramaliah, king of Israel, turned to Ahaz, king of Judah, to form a triple alliance against the Assyrians. And with Judah bordering Egypt, they might get the Egyptians to help fight off the Assyrians as well. So Ahaz has a terrible dilemma. Join the alliance against Assyria or surrender to the Assyrians and resist the Aram-Ephraim coalition. He chooses the latter, and it seems that he chooses badly. But God sends Ishayahu to console the king and to tell him that the invasion will fail, and besides, it will be another 65 years before Israel falls permanently. A voice of God charges Ahaz with asking God for a sign, but Ahaz wisely says, quote, I will not ask, and I will not test the Lord. 
Very smart. So Yeshayahu spins a prophecy about a young woman who will give birth to a boy named Emmanuel, and the baby boy will eat curds and honey and learn right from wrong. But before this happens, the Assyrians will smite Aram and Ephraim, but the situation in Judah will will deteriorate. In other words, there will be war, destruction, and desolation regardless. And on that uplifting note, thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. I was going to talk about pot etiquette. You know, when weed is legalized, will people treat it like they treat alcohol and bring little baggies of pot over as a housewarming gift? You know, it it was actually germane to this portion. But instead, I want to talk about something which is more of a buzzkill, punctuation and word choice. In a 1969 interview with the Paris Review, E.B. White was asked about whether there was such a thing as a New Yorker style. You know, I love the New Yorker magazine. I'm an avid subscriber. I'm an effete snob in in that way. And so E.B. White, when he was asked about this, he said no. The magazine, he said, published such an enormous volume of truly diverse stuff that there wasn't the slightest resemblance between pieces, except when it came to the magazine's copy desk. Commas in the New Yorker, he said, quote, fall with the precision of knives in a circus act outlining the victim. And when a comma falls in the wrong place, it could be costly. And not in the sense of let's eat grandma as opposed to let's eat, comma, grandma. It seems that there is a long history of misplaced commas costing a lot of money. The most famous example being the 13th Tariff Act issued by the American government in 1872. So for more than 100 years, the American government's revenue came from foreign import tariffs. Sometimes as much as 95% of the federal budget came from importers paying taxes on goods they intended to bring into the United States. Because taxes on income didn't become a thing until 1913. So if the government wanted to pay for anything, really, it needed to efficiently and thoroughly tax imports. This was especially critical in the years after the Civil War, when the government was managing the reconstruction of the South. And so President Ulysses S. Grant tried to reduce rates on many manufactured goods to kickstart the economy. He issued the Tariff Act with a free list. That is, items that are exempt from taxes. Importers scoured the list looking for anything to help them avoid paying anything to Uncle Sam. The same game is played today, by the way, by importers. They scour the list looking for loopholes or oddities in the tariff schedule. The average tax rate today is about 2%, but for example, t-shirts have a higher rate, like 16.5%. But if the t-shirt comes from Colombia, it comes in duty-free because Colombia signed a free trade agreement with the U.S., whereas, say, Bangladesh did not. Anywho, back to 1872. Then the average tax rate was 20%. Okay? Generally, quote, fruit plants, comma, tropical and semi-tropical for the purpose of propagation or cultivation, were exempt from paying the import tariff. Okay? You got that? Fruit plants, comma, be they tropic or semi-tropical, are exempt. Seeds used to cultivate fruit were also exempt, but the fruit itself was not. In the Tariff Act of 1870, the government established a duty of 20% on oranges, lemons, pineapples, and grapes, and a duty of 10% on limes, bananas, mangoes, coconuts, and basically every other fruit brought into the U.S. And since fruit was a major import item, 
and importers were paying double-digit taxes in every crate, the government had a pretty solid revenue stream from these importers. Except in the 1872 revision, for some reason, someone inserted a comma between the words fruit and plants instead of a hyphen. Which meant that all the importers that paid taxes on fruit wanted a refund because the act as written excluded fruit, right? Fruit, comma, plants, comma, tropical and semi-tropical for the purpose of propagation and cultivation, yada, yada, yada. Well, the Treasury wasn't interested in giving anybody any money back. But after a series of court cases, the Secretary of the Treasury kind of caved and refunded something like $2 million in duties, which was about 1.3% of the government's total tariff income in 1875, which would come to about $38 million in change in present-day dollars. The comma was corrected in a subsequent revision of the act. I've included a link to the New York Times which includes the record of the 43rd Congress where senators squabble over the fallout. There was a similar case here in Canada where a misplaced comma allowed Alliant Incorporated to escape a contract with Rogers Cable to the tune of $2.13 million. And no one who uses Rogers was even remotely upset about that. In 2002, Rogers signed a deal with Alliant to string cable lines across utility poles, locking them in for what they thought was a five-year rate. But in early 2005, Alliant announced a rate hike. They based their announcement on their understanding of the contract, specifically page 7, where because of a placement of a second comma, they were able to terminate the contract at any time without cause upon one year's written notice. The CRTC agreed. So kids, watch those commas. Now this episode's portion of Isaiah does not have a misplaced comma, but a contentious word. The word is alma. It appears in chapter 7, verse 14, quote, Assuredly, my Lord will give you a sign of his own accord. Look, the young woman is with child and about to give birth to a son. Let her name him Emmanuel. Again, remember, I'm using the JPS translation, which renders alma as young woman. The King James Version, in its various editions and subsequent modernizations, renders Alma as virgin. Is this verse ringing any bells now? The disagreement over what the word Alma means and how it is translated is not in the same league as the squabbling over a misplaced comma, because Christian doctrine believes that this verse in Isaiah predicts the virgin birth of Jesus. But let's take a step back before we launch ourselves into the New Testament, before we start translating the Tanakh into different languages and look at Alma on its own terms. The word itself, Alma, appears seven times in the Tanakh. In each instance, it refers to a young woman or unmarried maiden. There is a masculine form, Elim, which is used to refer twice to David, and in each case, it does so to highlight his youth. There is a word for a woman who has not yet had sex that is bitula, and nowhere in any instance of that word's use does it imply youth, because in some instances you'll find the phrase na'ara bitula, a young virgin. In our case, alma is also preceded by the definite article, as in ha'alma, which means that Yeshayahu is talking about a specific young woman. Perhaps he's referring to the mother of Chizkiyahu, or perhaps he's referring to his own young wife, or perhaps to his daughter. There are, however, problems with these candidates. Chizkiyahu was born a long time before the war with Ephraim and Aram, and although Alma does not specifically mean virgin, 
it probably does mean a girl who has not yet had a child, and Yeshayahu already has a son who is colorfully named She'ar Yeshuv. In any event, the whole Emmanuel business is not about the kid and his mother, but the meaning of the name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And there is an additional significance, the time it takes for this kid to learn right from wrong. God says he will destroy Ephraim and Aram before then. Where we get into trouble with Alma is when we start translating it. And the first concerted effort to translate the Tanakh into a different language came in the 2nd century BCE with the Greek Septuagint. They rendered Alma as Parthenos here in Isaiah and in another time in Genesis 24, when referring to Yitzchak's future wife, Rivka. Parthenos, according to Google Translate, means virgin. But if you recall, Alma appears seven times. The other five times Alma appears in the text, the Greek renders it as Nehanis, which means young girl. And the Greek also renders the word Naara as Parthenos too, and Naara means young girl, a word which is all about age and not about sex. By the time we reach the common era, and the earliest Christian groups are coalescing in Judea, Isaiah is their most popular prophetic book. It is the most cited in the New Testament, and half the quotations from Jesus come originally from Isaiah. The Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, was probably written sometime between 80 and 90 CE, although possibly as early as 70 or as late as 110. Written in Greek, probably by a Jew on the margins of Jewish society, but familiar enough with the traditional scripture, he drew on, scholars believe, three main sources, the Gospel of Mark, the earliest of all the Gospels, and what scholars call the Q source and the M source, anonymously authored collections of Jesus's sayings. Matthew regards Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophecies from Isaiah, and considering that he was writing in Greek and working in Greek, he probably worked with a translation of Isaiah in Greek, which rendered Alma as Parthenos. It is Matthew that identifies Jesus with the Emmanuel born to a Parthenos, and it is Matthew that recounts the virgin birth. Luke, a later gospel, does too, but Mark, the earliest gospel, does not, nor does John, who refers to Joseph as Jesus' father, nor does Paul, who says that Jesus was born of a woman without mentioning if the woman was a virgin or not. By the 2nd century CE, the virgin birth was universally accepted in the Christian church. It was enshrined in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. But this time, this time you all will see the real Apollo Creed. The whole world's going to see the real Apollo Creed. Lightning fast and hard to catch. No playing, no jiving, just business. Sorry, I just couldn't resist that joke. The virgin birth is a basic article of belief in the Catholic, Orthodox, and most Protestant churches. So you can imagine the scandal when in 1952, when the Revised Standard Version translators rendered Alma as young woman, conservative Christians exploded into outrage, accusing the translators of tampering with the Christian Bible and Christian belief itself. But don't worry, folks. Christian dogma is not just based on one contentiously translated verse in Isaiah. There are others such as the one that we'll encounter in our next episode. So stay tuned. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast, or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. 
Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast and pledge your shekels, either on a one-time or monthly basis, and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 92, when we continue in the book of Isaiah with chapters 8 through 11.